Hi, everyone. It's Stacy, and welcome to Tent Talks. I have a special guest today, Zina Benyon. Hello, Zina. Hi, Stace. Zina and I met, oh, I don't know, maybe five, ten years ago. Who knows? What is time? Yeah. I don't know time anymore. It was a while. It was a while (laughs) ago. We met through community events and through a product. Yes. You and your mom have a business. Some mom stuff. Mom stuff. And I just loved the salve, the all-purpose salve. So we kind of met in a couple of different intersections, but I would say mostly through community gatherings. And then we just kind of felt really aligned in interests like tarot and talking about deep shit. I don't know. (laughs) Well, and then I came and got a massage and it was, you know, game over. I was, I will, I will never quit Stacey Nelson. Sign, seal, deliver. (laughs) Magic hands. (laughs) So we're going to talk today about a topic that I feel like Zina is an expert Mm. um, about talking about (laughs) and it's death. I don't know if I'd say I'm an expert, but uh, I have a lot of recent experience. (laughs) Yeah. And you're not afraid to deconstruct it and sit with it. And I feel like so many people, they won't talk about death and you will. Yeah. And that's, I think, what makes you the expert is that you're you're not going to shy away from conversations or from sitting with somebody while they're dying. And that's a really big deal. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I've really had to work through, so I'll just give a little background and context. Is that yeah, okay? Yeah, So, you know, I mean, like all people, I've I've lost loved ones. All four of my grandparents have passed on. My first memory is of a funeral, <laughs> or one of my first earliest memories mm-hmm. was my great uncle Colin's funeral. I remember I was wearing these Dr. Scholl's clogs <laughs> <laughs> that they clacked really loud on the, the floor of the... <laughs> chapel but i you know death was and and i had animals die you know it wasn't like i was completely had no connection to death and and i grew up in a way i think i grew up on a farm ish like a lot of land where my parents had animals and you know i have memories of watching our pigs get slaughtered and then eating them and and kind of being involved in the circle of life and my dad would hunt and get a deer and i'd see him butcher it and you know so i i think i had a pretty decent relationship with death to some degree but it wasn't until the fall of 2020 september of 2020 my dear friend and a person who's a dear friend of many people in this community annie blake got diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer and went really fast in 3 months she was gone. And so yeah. that was my first just like gut punch, like my person, like my everyday kind of best friend person gone. And um, and it coincided with, you know, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but grief. And when you go, when you allow yourself to really go into death, all the deaths that haven't been really processed come up. I left the church, the LDS church, about seven years ago, and I process. I thought I'd processed a lot, but there was more grief that came up through that grieving process and grief of who I was. It, it kind of peeled back everything. And then last May, another dear friend texted me and let me know that they'd been diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, and so I spent a good chunk of this year out in California with them, supporting them while they were sick and getting treatments. And then they passed away just over two weeks ago. So the last dark moon, they passed away on the dark moon, which was really 
potent. And then I had another dear friend in the same time period who got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And thank Mm -hmm. God that friend is doing well and is in remission, you know, but one out of three. So just kind of feels like the death, the, the death mother, the dark mother, as I like to think of it, came knocking. And I've been in a deep place of just getting to know death over the last two years. Well, I think a lot of people also have had that same opportunity to get to mm-hmm. know the dark, the death mother. We're we, living in a plague. Yeah, we're living <laughs> in a plague. A lot of people are saying it's so you know weird that we're getting back to life. Yeah. And it is weird. And people are grieving, but they're not being allowed to grieve. And so it's slipping. Yeah. And I've noticed this with clients it's okay to slip, you know, while you're getting a massage, because it's like, that's what we're here to do is like, feel our feelings and, you know, get what's in our body outside of our body. And so, so many people that I've worked on have just been crying during sessions. We've really lost the art of grieving in our culture. We've lost, I mean, there's so many things. I, I think one of the things I've really become aware of is just how deeply death phobic we are as a culture. Um, mm-hmm. And me as an individual, I thought I was not death phobic. I thought, you know, I'd, I've sat through the goddess sessions, you know, or done the work about the, you know, the snake shedding its skin. I thought I understood that death is a beginning. But, you know, just the very foundation of if you were raised in any kind of Christian ideology, you were raised with this idea that death kind of doesn't happen. It's like, oh, well, Jesus died. Jesus got resurrected. You're going to be resurrected. There's no space for really allowing death to just be. It's like this, we worship passing over it. We worship escaping death and going up into the heavens with Sky Daddy and escaping our mortal bodies, escaping the earth. And we, we put all of our energy so far outside of this lived embodied experience. And I've just really become aware that part of this lived embodied experience is that death is our constant companion, as is life, and that they, the two are really entwined. And, and in terms of grief, like even at the turn of the century, it was still common that when a family went through a loss or a person went through a loss, you, you drew the shades, you know, that you put the crepe over the windows for at least two years and you dressed in black or you wore a black armband and people knew what that meant. They knew, oh, this person is grieving. This person is mourning. Mourning was a long period, even, you know, a hundred years ago. And, and now it's like, if your spouse dies, you get what, like maybe two weeks off from work for bereavement. I mean, and, and, you know, what I encountered with Annie, you know, I wasn't employed by anyone. I'm self-employed and I'm really lucky for that, but I can't even imagine if I'd had to go back to work. There's no bereavement for best friends, you know? Yeah. And I just, I can't, I feel really, really lucky and very privileged to have had the space to let my life really fall apart and die because it's been such potent medicine and, I think there's just so much unmetabolized, uncomposted grief and loss in our bodies from a lot of generations that we're just all lugging around. Like we're all lugging around a bunch of corpses inside of ourselves. I know that sounds yeah. kind of gruesome, but that's kind of how it feels. Well, 
I think there's something that happens to your psyche when you do see death, Mm -hmm. but we don't even see it in our culture anymore. It happens in a hospital in a really sterile environment. Other people then take over the care of the body. And then the next time we see the body there, you know, if it's a typical funeral around here, it's like they're pumped full of chemicals. There's makeup. They're dressed in their finest clothes. Or their cult clothes. Yeah, their cult (laughs) clothes. I'll never forget seeing my grandpa in that. And I was like, my grandpa left the church when he was on his mission. I was like, I don't and think that's the outfit he wants to wear those aprons. <laughs> I don't know. But it is this weird thing that your psyche, it's not getting a chance to full. Yeah. Like, the world is not reflecting reality. And so it's confusing. Yeah. Well, and I think because we've denied even the bare minimum of what our animal bodies need, we have such a backlog of grief that I think many of us, I know I was terrified of it because Mm -hmm. it just feels like it will last forever. Like I used to have this sensation in my belly of like, there is a well of sadness so deep in there that if I go in, I will never come out. And now I've gone and I've excavated and I'm continuing to excavate through somatic therapy and just my own grieving process. But, you know, in traditional culture that I've read about, in Africa, in Guatemala, other cultures, they have a really clear practice for how to support grief. And I was reading in this book called The Scent of Rain on Dust by a fellow named Martin Practal, and it's a great book about grief and dying. And he talks about this village in Guatemala that he lived in for a long time. And their process was when someone lost someone close to them, the people who were really in like the kind of deep, acute grief would just wander from village to village, wailing and crying. And everyone knew that that's what they would do. And everyone would come out of their houses, their huts, and just witness them. And they wouldn't try to be like, oh, it's okay, or oh, you'll see them again, or oh, it it was their time, or any of that bullshit. They would just hold space and witness. And if the person was filled with rage, they would witness it. And if the person was screaming revenge vendettas, I'm going to kill, they would be like, yeah, and we're going to help you. Because they knew that the person just needed to feel that emotion, that they weren't actually going to go murder the person who had maybe accidentally caused the death of their loved one. And everyone would just hold space for it and witness it and wail and grieve with them. And then then the person would get it out of their body. They would somatically process it through their body. And then they'd be okay. You know, then they could, Mm. it's not like the grief was gone, but then once the kind of insanity, because there is that kind of insanity that happens during that acute loss when it's someone really close. And we just, we, we flinch from it. And we also, we really suppress it. Like I have never been to a funeral where people actively grieved. Everyone is kind of sniffling and like dabbing their eyes and suppressing it as much as they can. And everyone's eyes are sort of leaking, but no one is wailing. And in lots of traditional cultures, Italian culture, Irish culture, I'm sure lots of others that I don't know of, they have typically women who are in charge of leading the grieving. In Irish culture, they're called keeners. And the, the women will keen and they will just they will get the wailing going and they will start it. And it's an art form and they mm-hmm. are really good wailers. And once you someone starts doing it and making that animal noise, other bodies can't help but like join in. It, it Yeah, <laughs> it's a contagion because like your body wants to do it. Yeah, yeah, and it feels good. <laughs> yeah, and they also have like kind of safety 
veils yeah. that they can cover their face. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's also an interesting part of keening because sometimes you just need this moment with yourself where you're not totally. concerned about like what you might look like under there. The like stalactite of snot yes. that's dripping down your nose with all that. Yes. <laughs> but you really want to participate. So you just yeah. grab that veil, yeah. put it over. Yeah. And, and just having these ways or, you know, keeping Shiva, you know, whatever it is, like, these ways, like, I was so touched, my friend Amara, the one who just passed away, the second time I went to visit and be with them, the house across the street from theirs was a family from Latinx background, I don't know exactly what country they were from. But right before I arrived, one of their family members had gotten in an accident and died. Um, and it was a young man. He, I think he was in his twenties and for at least a week, they had every night the street would fill with cars. Their door would be open. You could see into the home and right there in the entrance was an altar with his photo and mm-hmm. his effects, his things, tons of candles and flowers. And for a full week, there were just people streaming into the house. And sometimes it was the same people every night, you know, sometimes it was different. It was just space and time. And and there would be laughing and talking and crying and just every evening. That's what they did. They just held space for the grieving and loving of this person in their community. Wow. And we just, we just don't do that. We here. just don't do that. We have like a funeral, a luncheon or the graveside and then the luncheon and like, that's kind of it. And if it's, especially if it's when, you know, the context of what I grew up with, a Mormon context, it's, it's pretty sterile. It's pretty sanitized. They don't allow a lot of like free speaking about the person or no space for sharing of community stories. It's, it's very packaged. And well, it's an opportunity to teach the plan of salvation, right? The bishop has to speak. The bishop has to speak and they have to instill this idea that just skip, we'll see them again. Yeah, skip this death. This skip is their this time. Grieving, yeah. Be grateful yeah. that they're in a better place. And all of that can be true. You can believe all those things and there's nothing wrong with believing any of those things. And you can still be brokenhearted and be really sad and be grieving. And that's the piece that I think mm-hmm. we're really missing. Like, sure. Believe that you'll see your loved ones again, if that brings you comfort and that feels true to you, but don't, don't thwart your own emotions because of that. Don't, don't say, oh, well then I don't, I shouldn't be sad, you know, cause then you're just piling shame and. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's this concept of like, I shouldn't, it's one of those should words. I yeah. shouldn't be sad because, yeah, because I have to have the faith that they're in a better place. Right. And it's like, well, but you're still here without them. Yeah. And that's a loss. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to question your faith. Yeah. You can just, yeah, like you said, be with your body, with the loss of a person in your everyday life. Yeah. And feel that. And what I've learned is that grief is not something that you go through and then you're done with. Grief is something that once you wake up to grief, (laughs) once death has like really moved into your body, it's there and you live with it. Like Mm -hmm. I feel like I am still deeply apprenticing grief and learning how to live with it and learning how to tend to it. Like realizing that like death is constantly happening. I mean, I I see death all the time now. Like I notice when I hit an insect, I notice when I see a dead animal on the side of the road, like 
I notice it when I'm eating, you know, just thinking about like, oh, I'm consuming this lettuce or this piece of meat or this whatever. Like it, death is, it's meant to be constant with us. It's meant to be this close companion because what I've found, I mean, this might be what we talk about next time, uh, <laughs> is just the gifts of death and, and how much I feel like death has given me. Yeah. Well, and if we're constantly thinking about death and in this relationship with death, then it's it's not something that we're actively avoiding. Yeah. Because we don't realize we're actively avoiding it until we finally look death in the eyes. Yeah. And then we realize, oh, I've been actually trying not to do this for so long. Yeah. But I even think about that, not with just like food and animals, but situations. Like yeah. I can let something go, mm-hmm. a relationship, a job, a, a situation that I don't like, I can let it go. I don't have to prolong its life right. and keep this like evolution of building or adapting or... I can just say, this needs a death. Yeah. This needs an end point. Yeah. And it kind of, yeah, it's helped me accept endings. Yeah. Yeah. And still be, you know, mystical about it or have beliefs about it or, you know, like like we were talking about earlier, you can do multiple things at once. Yeah. And it's okay. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of our culture when you really start seeing death everywhere and being aware of death, you start to realize how much of what we do as humans is to actively avoid death. You know, I've already talked about religion and the ways that religious belief often is pretty death avoidant. And that doesn't mean that all religious beliefs are wrong and bad. It's just really examining like, oh, is this making me bypass this essential part of life? I look at our obsession with health and wellness as being very death phobic or anti-aging anti-aging yeah all this stuff of like the eternal youthfulness like staying young looking like dying our hair like i'm so psyched about my gray hair that's coming in <laughs> i love it because i'm just like yeah my body's 43 years old it's been through some shit and i love that my body has like record of that like tree rings i look at the myth that you somehow deserve and are entitled to living to an old age, even. I I read this book Mm. called um, Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson, and he's a really interesting thinker and writer about death. He worked in palliative care for about 20 years up in Canada, Just and he called himself the angel of death. He would go to people's homes and help them accept the fact that they were dying. And Mm. the book was really profound for me to read because he talks about, you know, especially doing palliative care for people losing children. And just that's so hard. It's so heartbreaking. And he said over and over, I'd hear people say, it's just not fair. It's just not right. This shouldn't happen. And he said, in what world, in what period of human history have people of all ages not died? And he talks about this elder, I don't remember what culture they were from. Actually, I think he was quoting Martin Praktaligan, who was speaking from this Guatemalan culture that he lived in. And this this elder was saying, I am really worried about your North American culture. Like, I'm very worried for you. He was deeply concerned, he said, because in your culture, people wake up every day feeling, expecting that they will live, feeling entitled to life. Entitled to life. Entitled to life. Entitled to this and and it's like I look at people spending their whole lives trying to work hard enough to buy the house that's big enough to to afford the treatments and 
cosmetic and healthcare, whatever, all it's just running from death instead of just being in the moment. Mm -hmm. Every single day is a gift. Every moment is a miracle that we're alive. And I know that sounds so cliche and cheesy, but I know that in my body in a way that I did not know it two years ago. And it's just like, I I don't know when my number is going to be up. It could be this afternoon, could be tomorrow, could be next week. It could be when I'm 95. I have no fucking clue. Mm -hmm. But every day that I am alive is this incredible gift. Annie didn't know she was going to get cancer. Mm -hmm. She didn't know she had three months left, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, what, how are we, how are we spending the time that we have? How are we living each day as if it is this precious gift? You know, that Mary Oliver line that gets thrown, what will you do with your one wild and precious life? And I really resent it when I see that used in like girl boss quotes. Oh my gosh. I'm just like, because if you read the rest of that poem, Mary Oliver is saying like, I'm going to go stare at the flies in the bog or, you know, whatever. It's something very simple. And that's, I feel like that's really one of the gifts that death has given me is just being so present with death makes me so present with life. Like I feel... I have been in this very dead place for the last two years and life is starting to come back in and it's exquisite the way that I feel life in my body now because death is so present. I'm living in a way that I never lived before because death is so present. And I feel like that's happening on a massive scale with the death of capitalism because people are saying- We can't worship this thing (laughs) because actually life is too precious. Mm -hmm. My life is too precious to spend the majority of it thinking about this. In a cubicle. Yeah. (laughs) I know. It's like, no, life Mm -mm. is too beautiful. There's too many things that I want to think about and do. And yeah, Yeah. time is a gift. It's not just an expectation. And I love that collectively we're moving into that space now. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, uh, if what are those Instagram, like, what's your unpopular opinion? (laughs) My, (laughs) my unpopular opinion is that it might get kind of gnarly as we reacquaint ourselves with death. You know, Mm -hmm. it might get kind of gnarly and, you know, I don't wish death upon, you know, people in a sort of prophetic apocalyptic, like, ah, all shall die. But I, I just think we have, pushed death back. We've stuffed death behind a door for so long that it's bursting at the seams. You know, I look at the wildfires that are happening. You know, we Mm -hmm. have this, all of this, oh, the fires are getting worse. They're getting worse. It's like, yeah, because we've held them back for so long. They are a natural death and cleansing that, that the ecosystems naturally do to keep life in the forest and the mountains in balance. And because we've moved in and built all these houses. And I don't have the view that humans are some sort of, you know, parasitic problem. We are beautiful animals that belong on this earth just as much as all other animals, but we've gotten a disproportionate view of our place and we've forgotten to flow with the natural rhythms of an ecosystem. We try to control them. And it's the same with death. We try to control our relationship to life and death. Mm. And I think that we will see, you know, these sort of apocalyptic fever dreams of my childhood of like the the fires and the tornadoes and the destruction it's like yeah that's going to happen but it's 
probably going to happen in a violent a way as our resistance. It's like if we resist Whoa, it, yes, it will yes. be, it, you know, it's like Newton's third law of thermo, or is it thermodynamics, not thermo. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. If we can't stop pushing, trying to hold all that at bay, it probably will get kind of violent. But if we can kind of open our arms to death and just mm-hmm. say, oh, hey, let's let's reacquaint ourselves, old friend. Like, yeah. l- let's welcome this back in. Then we can come back into that balance. Mm-hmm. And and then grief just becomes this natural part of your life and not this like scary monster under the bed that we're terrified of when it's going to mm-hmm. pop up. Yeah. I have so many thoughts coursing through my head right now. One of them is in birth work, birth work and death work are hand in hand. Mm-hmm. They totally. are two sides yes. of the same coin. And with every contraction, a woman feels her body kind of like ripping open. Yeah, That's a violent phrase, but it is like your bones and your ligaments have to expand and it feels literally like your body's ripping open. And the more resistance that you have to that, the harder it is. So labor preparation is like when you feel a contraction, when you feel that pain, you surrender into it. You open up your arms wide, you open your body, you jump into that wave because you need to flow with it and not against it. And that is a very hard concept when it's in your body and there's pain associated. Right. But that's also death. Yeah. Like, you want to resist the pain because it feels so scary to have someone leave your life or you leave life, but you have to just say, take the, I don't know, the great leap into the unknown. Yeah. Because the truth is, even with all the theology and ideology we have, no one really knows. No one no one knows. No one knows. And people have <laughs> near death. It's the mystery. It's the mystery. People have near death experiences and there are similarities, <clears throat> but there's also enough variation yeah. that we really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I really relate to that comparison of, of death and birth. And one thing I really learned through Annie's death was she died at home and it was just Simon, her partner, um, with her. And hearing Simon tell that story, which I've, I had the privilege of hearing him tell it when it had just happened. And a few other times, it's a birth story. You know, she was in labor and we've all heard our friends' birth stories. And if you haven't go ask your friends about their birth stories, because it's an important thing to know (laughs) if they want to share, but we don't, we don't tell the death stories. It's like, Oh, how did they die? Tell me about their death. What was it like? Mm. And also people should be held in community while that's happening. You know, and like you said earlier, often it happens in a hospital. But I I just think that we need more death stories. We need more becoming comfortable and acquainted with that process, just like we are with birth, allowing for it and and not resisting it. There are so many aspects of grief. There's there's the sorrow and the sadness and the missing and the loneliness and there's the deep rage. And one of the things that I've had to work through in terms of being angry is just feeling so robbed. Mm. that I didn't get to have like really deep conversations with Annie about the fact that she was dying because she just couldn't look into it. And I don't fault her for that at all. And even Amara, who was even more acquainted with death. I mean, Amara was kind of a death priestess for a lot of their life. They were, they were deeply acquainted with death. Even for them, it was, it was really hard to have those direct conversations because we're just 
so ill-equipped as a culture. And Stephen Jenkinson talks about this also in that book, Die Wise, about how he would watch people. He would come into a person, you know, who was receiving palliative care. And he would say, what's your, what's your goal with this care? Whether it was chemo, radiation, whatever it was. Oh, more time, more time. And he'd say, okay, okay, well, what are you going to do with that more time? And he said, I watched so many people spend their more time trying not to die. Like so many people who were dying, not dying. They would never consciously accept that they were dying. And so even up until the very end, and so they died kind of unconsciously, this kind of unconscious dying where it's like you resist it so far to the end that then it kind of happens rather than, and he talks about what he calls the medical industrial (laughs) complex of, you know, where we have this ability to prolong life in some cases. And that's really miraculous and can be really beautiful, but it also creates a sense of false hope for people who that's not going to work for. And then they spend their whole, what precious time they have left, they spend all of it in doctor's appointments and whatnot. And even the language we use of fighting, you know, fighting cancer, mm-hmm. you know, you're a survivor, that the, their battle is over. You know, we just use this very violent language around illness and dying instead of supporting, like, none of us knows the outcome. And it might be useful to prepare to really look at death because that's definitely on the table. For, for I mean, it's definitely on the table for all of us Everybody, any day. Like, no one's getting out you, of it. <laughs> I mean, God forbid you and I could get in a car accident. Or, right, right, you, know, you, you don't know. And so one of the things that I did was last summer, my sister came home from France. She lives overseas. And once our whole family was in one place again, I said, okay, we're sitting down and we're talking about death. <laughs> I like, I'm a super Virgo. I got out my like spreadsheet and I, <laughs> I literally made a Google doc of like the Benyon family death plans. And we went through person by person. And I asked questions of like, what do you want your death to look like? Like, what do you want in terms of your burial? What do you want in terms of the celebration or funeral or memorial? Like, what do you want done with your remains? Like, and, you know, a lot of it was kind of practical stuff, but also it really got everyone thinking and talking about like, you know, how how do we want to die in community? And like, I think a lot about my own death and like, I want to die surrounded by people who love me and it's going to be hard. It's going to be gnarly. I'm not going to be some sort of saint who has it all figured out and just ascends into a cloud. Like I'm going to wrestle and wrestle with it and, and it'll be a labor, but I want it to be witnessed and I want it to be witnessed by people who deeply love me and see me. And Mm -hmm. I want that to be a gift to them that feeds and nourishes them. And I want my body to like feed a tree. But in order to die that way, I've got to live that way. I need deep community that's rooted enough to show up in that way. To support you. And to support me. And and so that's another piece I really witnessed in Annie. The community that she had built really showed up for her. And, yeah. you know, we showed up how we could with lots of blankets and casseroles. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was COVID, so it's not like we couldn't yeah. all be in the room. Although Simon and I have lamented that we didn't just, like, do that because we, you know, we were all so caught in our minds about protocol and safety. But... And then with Amara, it was really difficult to witness them have such deep, rich community, but their communities stretched from Ontario, Canada, where they grew up, to all across America and a lot of community in California where they'd lived for a long time. But there wasn't like a Hub. a home yeah. place where their full community and, and people came and stayed with them, but it was it was kind of 
hard and wonky and and they did die in a beautiful way surrounded by really close loved ones and I'm so happy that that happened and it's been beautiful to watch you know how their bodies been tended and and cared for and and their wishes have been honored but I've really reevaluated my own relationships because I have a lot of friends around the world which I'm not cutting those people out of my life but I'm like oh I really want to invest with community where I am yeah I felt that now more than ever yeah, yeah, the pandemic did that for all of us, I think. Yeah. I really want to keep talking about death with you. <laughs> so we're going to continue this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Of course. And um, we'll see you next week. Okay, love you, Stace. Love you. <laughs>